This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to New Book Network. This is Carmen Gomez-Galisteo, and today I am the host of a new interview with author Sharon Milagro Marshall, who is going to speak with us about her latest book, Tell My Mother I Gone to Cuba, Stories of Early 20th Century Migration from Barbados, published by the University of the West Indies Press. Thank you very much, uh, Sharon, for being with us today. Thank you, Carmen. It's my pleasure. Uh, I have to say that the book is really interesting. I enjoyed it a lot because the stories are very, very nice. And I enjoyed the, the, the book a lot. It is very easy to, to, to read and it is a pleasure to, to read the, the, the book. So the, this book is the story of, of your family in a way, of the migration experience of your maternal grandparents to, to Cuba. So can you tell us a bit about this experience moving for, uh, to Cuba from Barbados and how this shaped your own family history? Carmen, while my family's story is part of Tell My Mother I Gone to Cuba, the book isn't exclusively about my family. What it does is place the migration experience of my maternal grandparents into the wider context of the migration from Barbados and other West Indian islands in the early part of the 20th century. When industrialists from the United States of America began investing in sugar plantations in Cuba, Primarily in the eastern part of the country, that was the catalyst which drew thousands of migrant laborers to Cuba. They were in search of better economic opportunities, or for some, simply adventure. My grandmother and grandfather were part of this wave of emigration, and their leaving has profoundly shaped our family to this day. When my grandmother returned to Barbados in 1936, after the death of her husband, she brought the younger children, including my mother, with her. But the two older sisters remained in Cuba, and that's the reason I still have many cousins there in Cuba. So very convenient. You want to go on holiday. You have a home. <laughs> Indeed. 
Um, well, the, 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 this story has been with you forever because, as you say, this is your family history. And uh, but when did you decide you wanted to turn it into into a book? And as you say, place that into a larger context because it is not only your your family's unique experience; it is part of a larger trend. Yes, I grew up with my mother and her siblings. My aunt and uncles speaking Spanish among themselves. I knew about the migration to Cuba. I knew that they had been born in Cuba. They had friends who also were part of that migration experience uh, in our lives when we were young. But I simply accepted it as this is what happened with my family. I didn't understand at a young age how It was part of the history of Barbados and, and, and the West Indies. The genesis of the book was my PhD dissertation. And doctoral studies in history were prompted by a 1993 reporting assignment for the Caribbean Broadcasting Union. That was the first time that I visited a place called Baragua in Sierra de Avila province. And it was an amazing experience meeting and interviewing West Indian descendants there. So Baragua is where I began to understand the context of my own family story. And that was what inspired me to conduct more research. Yeah, well, and it is amazing you're writing a dissertation and, and you find time for, for more research. <laughs> you, you didn't have enough with a, with a dissertation. <laughs> So, from that first visit in, in 1993 to Baragua, how long did it take to, to write the, the book? It wasn't a, a straight, linear process. After the Baragua visit, I enrolled at the University of the West Indies in 1994 to begin my research. And I took a leave of absence from the graduate program in history from 1995 to 1996. I was in a full-time job working with the Caribbean Broadcasting Union. It was a job which entailed a lot of travel and I found some difficulty in juggling my studies because the research is self-directed. There's no uh, structured program of classwork or anything. So after I took that leave of absence, when I returned to the the studies, I was still in, in full-time employment. I was conducting research at the Barbados Archives and the Public Library on weekends. And then research visits to Cuba, Jamaica, the United States, and the United Kingdom were undertaken during my vacation time. Ultimately, I graduated with a PhD in history in October 2001. And after that, there were lots of changes in my personal and professional life. As a result, I didn't make any real effort to publish the research until 2015 when I approached the University of the West Indies Press. And the book was published by UE Press in 2016. And something that, you, that I find uh, curious is that you mentioned in the book that the children of immigrants in, in Cuba, they still keep their, their parents' accent. Do they keep other traditions from Barbados? That, that was among the most amazing things to me because while I was on assignment in Baragua, I interviewed a gentleman by the name of Joseph Atwill, and he had a distinctly Barbadian accent. And then I discovered that he had never been to Barbados. I was really intrigued. 
And then he told me, well, my sister Maradel is in Barbados. She lives just across the road from the Barbados Community College. And that's where I, I made that connection. So the descendants of the original migrants, in addition to speaking English with their parents' accents, still cook some of the same foods that their parents or grandparents cooked, recipes that they had taken with them from Barbados. Then the folk songs which were taken to Cuba can still be heard in Baragua. And the maypole dance is still done on special occasions. And of course, the game of cricket is another West Indian legacy, which is, is still present in Cuba. Yeah, and it is amazing because, you know, they are they are already born in Cuba and it is the traditions of the parents or the grandparents and they still keep them in that. So it is it is very curious to see that they still retain something from, from Barbados. And and they they have a very warm sentimental attachment to, to Barbados based on what had been conveyed to them by, by their father or mother about life in Barbados in the early 20th century. So um, amazing because they, they were Cuban born. So, yeah. And you combine these these stories with a historical overview of the history of Barbados. Uh, what was Barbados like at the beginning of the 20th century once slavery had been abolished before the immigration? I... Yes, I, I thought it was important to set the context within which that migration took place. And in the post-emancipation period, life for the formerly enslaved was little changed from what had obtained during the period of slavery. Laborers were still bound to the plantations where they had toiled and there was little opportunity for upward mobility. There was a great deal of poverty in what remained a largely agricultural economy. So migration was seen as an outlet for an, an overpopulated island. It was seen as an avenue to improve economic circumstances for the people who, who left the island. And you tell us about migration to Cuba, but did they migrate to other countries as well, or they mostly migrated to Cuba? They certainly did go to, to other countries. And there's a saying, wherever you go, you will find a Barbadian, because Barbadians have had this impulse to, to migrate from the earliest days. Laborers began migrating from Barbados almost immediately. They had the freedom to take their labor to other markets, which offered better wages. And among the places Barbadians went to were neighboring territories like Trinidad and then what was British Guyana. They went to Brazil to work on the construction of the railroad and to Panama to help build the Panama Canal. In fact, some people went directly from Panama to Cuba after the canal was completed in 1914 where they worked with American bosses. The Americans were developing the sugar industry in Cuba, buying up plantations, and they were English-speaking, and the English-speaking laborers from Panama, or the West Indians who had gone to Panama, found employment in the Cuban sugar industry primarily. 
And even though they, they found that uh, they're American people who spoke English, uh, what were the challenges that they found when they got to Cuba? Because um, even if their employers spoke English, it was a, a Spanish-speaking country. So apart from, from the language, what challenges did they have? And what kind of life did they have there? Was it easy or was it very difficult? Because I suppose that the sugar industry was not very pleasant work. Yes, you really would need to read the book to get a full picture. But to suffice it to say that economic opportunity was the main attraction of Cuba, but the laborers endured a great deal of discrimination. The sugar industry was a labor-intensive one, which required more workers than were available in Cuba. And this provided the job opportunities for the migrant workers. However, they encountered many challenges. They had to contend with xenophobia and racism because they were mostly black working class people who, who went. There was some resentment on the part of some sections of Cuban society. Some of the workers were cheated out of their wages. They worked in, in company towns, which paid in vales, so that there was a system of indebtedness. You had to spend those vales at the company store, so some people weren't able to accumulate wealth or any appreciable amount of money. Some were cheated out of houses that they had bought there. There was one instance where I mentioned in the book that people had saved up money, they bought houses in one development. There was a clause in the mortgage contract that if they failed to pay their mortgage for three consecutive months, that the properties would be forfeited. And the developer conveniently absented himself for three months so that people couldn't find him to pay the money and then seize the property. But worse than that, some were physically ill-treated, some were shot and even killed. But despite the challenges, many were able to build decent lives for themselves and their families. They established their own institutions, churches, schools, fraternal lodges, social clubs, and other self-help organizations, and made a life for themselves in, in Cuba. Um, you mentioned that many migrants settled down in, in the town of Barawa, where they tried to recreate their native country up to a certain extent, and also because they were surrounded by, by neighbors. And uh, So what was Barawa like? Barawa was a thriving community in its heyday. The sugar factory, or Central, was built by Americans and began operations in 1917. And as I said, some of the people who went there to help with the construction of the, the factory and subsequently to work in the sugar industry once operations began, had come from Panama. Others had come from Barbados and other parts of the British West Indies. In Baragua, there was a section called Bajan Town, Bajan being the short for Barbadian. So Bajan Town was where primarily Barbadians had settled. And there was also Jamaica Town, where members of the other dominant West Indian nationality, Jamaica, were located. And the migrants, as I said, made a life for themselves. They played cricket matches and hosted visitors from other West Indian enclaves around Cuba, from Guantanamo, from Las Tunas, 
Olguin, various places around Cuba. So it, it was a vibrant community. And from photographs of the back in the, the 1920s, you can see that people were well-dressed. They performed the, the dances, sang the folk songs which had been taken to Cuba. And it, it, it was a thriving community. However, with the, the economic situation in Cuba, things have deteriorated very badly, but there's still sm uh, small uh, communities of Barbadians and other British West Indians there. They built their houses in the same style as what they had been accustomed to in Barbados. So they, they've left an imprint in, in that community. And uh, nowadays, do they still keep the same houses? Does the town have this uh, flavor of Barbados? There are still a few, but most of them not in very good condition. So I don't know how much longer they, they will remain like that. Of course, there have been other housing developments in, in more recent times, and which do not have the same character as, as the... West Indian houses did back in the, the 20s and so on. And a point that you make in the book is that education was very important for migrants. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? Education was extremely important to the migrants because they saw it as a passport to a better life and ensured that their children received instruction in both English and Spanish. They established their own schools. Teachers came from Barbados and Jamaica, and gave lessons to the West Indian children in Baragua and in other enclaves in, in Cuba, because the hope of the migrants was to return home one day, and they wanted their children to be equipped for life back in their home country when that day arrived. So the teacher was very well respected in the community, and the parents made the sacrifice of providing that education for their children. And uh, I think that is interesting because sometimes, especially at, uh, in the 20th century, when people migrated to other countries, they didn't intend to return. So they only spoke in the, in the local language. But no, this community really kept uh, English alive, which is important because maybe at this time it was, there was no this tradition of speaking languages. Yes. Well, the thing is that for some people, the, the migration was a seasonal thing and it, and it wasn't intended to become a permanent situation. Some people went during the crop time when there was a more intensive demand for labor and they would work for six months and then return home. And this is primarily single males. But eventually... You know, wherever people are gathered, you fall in love, you get married, and time goes by, and, and you remain in that situation. Yeah, However, and life gets complicated, and children, yeah, are, are, raising the, children are raised in this country. And... Yes, indeed. Indeed. And when you were compiling the, the stories in the volume, was it difficult for you to get uh, people to agree to share their, their experiences with, with you, or no? They were talkative and chatty. Well, some people were more difficult to persuade than others. 
But once they committed, I got their full cooperation and they shared family photographs and letters that really brought the experiences alive. But I'm really fortunate to have captured some of these stories at the time in which I did because all of the people whom I interviewed in the book, including my own mother, has has since died. So that history of the interaction between Barbados and Cuba is is preserved in a document which can be read for, for generations to come. The earlier returnees to, to Barbados, some of them were quite reluctant to speak about their experiences in Cuba because of the difficult circumstances that I, I mentioned just a short while ago. And I'm very fortunate to have been able to capture some of those narratives about life in Cuba for Barbadians and other British West Indians. And um, in, in general, what is your feeling? Do you think that when people recount their experiences, they sugarcoat it or they, they have, a, because many years have gone by, do, they, do you think they have a very rosy, tinted uh, opinion of what happened? Or on the contrary, they, they remember the, the difficulties and the hard times? Because on the one hand, it was hard, but on the other is your Georgian years when, <laughs> and everything. Yeah. The, about, I think people were quite honest about what they they experienced. As I said, the older generation had been reluctant to, to talk about it because the idea was that you, you leave for better and the expectation was that you would come back with more money than what you had left with. And this was not always the case. There was a bank crash in 1921 and Hundreds of people lost their deposits, and the West Indians were among these. So there was reason to be bitter, to be dejected, and so on. But what is captured in the stories is people's resilience and how they overcame, overcame the challenges and, and were able to thrive despite them. And what are your, your favorite stories in the book? <laughs> All of the stories provide some insight into what the migratory experience and life in Cuba were like. However, for me, the most compelling narratives are the ones told by Rufus Hoyt, who stowed away to Cuba as a young man. And it was from Mr. Hoyt that I got the title of the book because he didn't have his mother's permission to leave. He had gone to the agent and bought a permit to go out to Cuba and she took the permit back to the agent, got the money back. And he went off to watch other men in the neighborhood who were leaving. And then he got a ride out in a small boat out to the ship where the men were. And he climbed on a rope, climbed up onto the ship and told the man who had brought him out on the boat, when you get home, tell my mother I'd gone to Cuba. <laughs> So his stories was really fascinating. 
Yeah, and uh, it is amazing that people are still keep in, in touch and in contact because uh, it, it looks incredible. But if you wanted to send your family back in Barbados a letter, it took time. It, it was not instantaneous or, or, or everything. And that is something I tell my, my younger students. Yeah, but migrating my at this time was very, very complicated. Um, ships uh, were not what they are. So journeys took a long time. And, and then you couldn't call your mother and say, I am, I am fine. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> And and they, they, one thing about the West Indians, they, from their whatever they were able to save, they sent money back to the relatives that they'd left behind. And amazingly, they, they would put money in postal <laughs> envelopes and send back or send by, by other people who were traveling back to Barbados. And um, Maradel Green's story is also really exciting for me. She spoke about participating in a beauty contest. She was one of the persons who, whose parents settled in Baragua. And of course, the story told by my own mother, Delcina Esperanza, about her childhood. She was born in a place called Central Hershey, which was owned by Milton Hershey, the American chocolate manufacturer. He had a whole company town. My Grandfather was the chief blacksmith at his factory. And uh, my mother has very, or had, since she, she is now deceased, wonderful memories of growing up in Cuba. And she came to Barbados as a nine-year-old. And she still remembered that. I, she did not return to Cuba for 53 years. The first time she went back was in 1989. And I went with her on my first visit to Cuba and I met some of her childhood friends and it was really quite an emotional experience. And um, would you say that the majority remain in Cuba or just the opposite, the majority return to, to Barbados in, in the end? It's it's difficult to say if it's the majority, I, I imagine half and half. In 1935, there was legislation introduced into the Cuban parliament to to forcibly repatriate uh, non-Cubans. Huh? They, they initiated legislation 50%, la ley de 50%, which uh, uh, stipulated that, f- that 50% of the em- persons employed in Cuba must be Cuban nationals. So the migrants who didn't have their papers to remain in Cuba had to leave. So they eventually returned home and um, some remained in in Cuba. So what about the migrants who returned to to Barbados? What what challenges did they they face? Because they had to readjust to to their native country after so many years of absence. So what, what, what difficulties did they have? My maternal grandmother was among those who returned. She came in 1936 as a widow with five young children, and this had its own challenges. In those days, Cuba was much more developed than Barbados was, and the children had been used to having electricity in Cuba. There was none in their rural communities, so it was very dark at night, and they cried. They wanted to go back to Cuba. They spoke Spanish amongst themselves, which made them the objects of curiosity for their English-speaking schoolmates. 
And sometimes they would be commanded to speak Spanish, speak Spanish for the amusement of these English speaking children who did not understand the language, but found it fascinating that these children in their class had the facility of another language. But generally there were questions of uh, whether or not the migrants would be accepted, how they would be treated, were they Cuban or Barbadian, this whole issue of identity and belonging. And these were questions that remained even up to the present day. And I explore these themes more fully in my most recent book, which is called A Return to Roots, Cubajans in Barbados, which was published by UE Press uh, in 2022. And inevitably there are comparisons between Cuba and Barbados. Uh, Barbados at the moment is the, the object of desire for the descendants of some of the original migrants because there's been that reverse migration. Children and grandchildren are coming to Barbados to establish themselves in their parents' or grandparents' home country in order to avail themselves of better economic opportunities than are available to them in Cuba. But they're not always accepted. There's a slight accent when they speak and questions from other Barbadians. Well, do they belong here? Are they Barbadians or, or are they foreigners? And uh, they've had to, to make their own way in Barbados. Many of them have worked in the education system, teaching Spanish at the primary level and up to tertiary level. So they are making a, a contribution to their for parents' country. So this is the end of the interview. Thank you very much, Sharon, for being with us today to talk about uh, Tell My Mother I Gone to Cuba, stories of early 20th century migration from Barbados, published by the University of the West Indies Press. It has been a pleasure. It has been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on the program. Thank you.